Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Genesis Block podcast. Uh, this is another episode in our interview series and today for you guys we've got Sid Shait and yeah, uh, before let's get to the elephant in the room. There's three Sids in this call at the moment. Uh, so I, I guess that that's, uh, that's a bit of a white elephant, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, really good to have you on uh, Sid. So Sid is a uh, uh, growth and capital market associate at Maple Finance, and you know if you guys are uh, are even a little bit into crypto, which I'm sure you are, uh, since you listen to this podcast, um, you'd know all about what Maple Finance is and um, what it does. It's essentially a, a, a lending platform, um, an institutional lending platform, and uh, yeah, we'll just let Sid talk a little bit more about uh, you know Maple, his journey, um, and uh, you know all the problems that Maple is trying to solve in the space alongside all the things that he's interested about and excited about uh, in, in the crypto space. So yeah, Sid, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. No worries at all, man. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, yeah, you know, I think that uh, let's uh, let's just get started then. I think, uh, you know, why don't you start off with uh, telling us a little bit about your background, um, about, you know, what Maple Finance is and what led you to your role as a growth and capital markets associate at, at Maple Finance and you know what you do there. Awesome. More than happy to. So I started my career in, in the traditional finance space. So I worked in sales and trading at Deutsche Bank straight out of university. Um, I went to the London School of Economics and that's that's the kind of thing that most people there do. So, um, but no, I've been interested in, in finance for a long time. And uh, my specific role at, at DB was, was interest rate derivatives. So interest rate swaps, but also we we hedged a bunch of other things, commodity prices, inflation, that kind of thing. So I was your, I was the guy who was hedging out risk on on capital markets transactions, basically. And that was a cool role for me because it wasn't a pure sales role, right? You had to be able to price a derivative and, and do some of that. But also it, it was, you know, we were covering corporates. And so there was an element of selling. And, and I really enjoyed the kind of hybrid of those two things, right? Uh, rather than just being a pure outbound car salesman, it was, there was a little bit of uh, intellectual rigor involved there as well, which was a, which was a great combination for me. As an aside, I'd say the investment banking trading floor is a fantastic place to get trained. The level of responsibility and, and intensity of that job for a junior is unrivaled, as far as I'm aware, in, in any other early stage career. And it was a great, uh, a great platform for me to kind of get started. Um, but whilst I was there, uh, I took an interest in DeFi and crypto assets from a personal investing perspective. And, you know, one thing that people might not be aware of is, is bankers are always looking at this kind of thing, right? They're, they're naturally the kind of people that um, want to be exposed to interesting markets and spot opportunities. And so there was a lot of buzz on the trading floor, even generally from people's personal investment portfolios about, about investing in crypto, all the way down to things like catching early stage shitcoins and NFTs. Um, and so that's kind of, that was, that was my encouragement to get involved and research it on my own. And then, you know, after three or four years at Deutsche Bank, I was in 2022, you know, we were seeing DeFi summer, some great traction happening. And I took a long-term view on the space, right? I said, this technology looks like it's here to stay. It's proved itself out through multiple market cycles. And in my view, the general finance space hasn't really experienced innovation like this on the tech side in, in many, many years, right? It's, it's if, you, if you've ever worked at a bank or, you know, anyone who works at a bank, they'll tell you we're still on Excel doing the same thing the guy in our seat did back in the 2000s. And so for me, it was quite exciting to see this kind of paradigm shifting tech coming to the market. And my logic was, 
in 10 years time, when this is an asset class to rival commodities, there aren't going to be too many folks wandering around with 10 years of experience in the space, right? As simple as that from a personal career perspective. And so I kind of thought, I'm young, let's get in, let's get in early. And so I moved to GSR, who is a market making firm. Um, they operate similarly to a hedge fund, if you, if you want to think about it like that. That was a great experience and gave me lots of exposure to the space very early on, but in kind of a half step away. Everyone there was ex-Goldman or ex-hedge fund. So the culture was very similar to traditional finance. It wasn't like, you know, going from one extreme to the other. It was actually a very yeah. similar environment to what I was used to. But uh, at least I, I was, you know, as part of that, we, we speak to lots of new projects, guys who are launching a token in the space, and we pitched them the, the market-making services that GSR offered. And so as a result of that, I got a lot of exposure to founders who were telling me about what they were building, the problems they were facing. And I realized I found the world they were doing really interesting, right? Like, how do you find product market fit? How do you operate in a team of 20 people in a whole company, right? Like, what, what does marketing look like? How do you improve a product? Those kind of things that, you know, you never get any exposure to in a traditional finance role. And that's what kind of inspired me to try and find a role on the, uh, on the project side, on the startup side. And, you know, Maple is a, is a leading brand, right? When it comes to that kind of thing, still has that finance background that suits me very well. And, and I can get into this to more detail, but the thesis of the team is to make the existing system better, right? And that's something I resonated a lot with because I've seen how inefficient traditional finance really is, right? And yep. how, how, how hard it is to get things done. And so it fit very well with my personal view of why I was in crypto, right? That original thesis that I had and, and, you know, everyone on the commercial side here at Maple has spent time in a bank or, or on the buy side. And so it was a very natural fit for me to come on. Awesome. I think, yeah, there's quite a lot in there that, that we can break down and let's, I guess, uh, start from the top a little bit. So, um, yeah, you know, you mentioned obviously that, um, the bankers and, and and people on the trading floor find all of these kinds of innovations and everything, you know, uh, they, they keep a watch out for them. Uh, you know, they dabble in them from time to time as well. So wh why do you think that is? And what is of interest uh, specifically, you know, within these kinds of innovation that, that interests, um, you know, people within traditional finance and just in general as well, uh, you know, uh, people within finance, like why is everyone uh, in crypto, basically also, you know, the Venn diagram of people in, who are in crypto and people who are interested in finances, it, 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 it intersects quite a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll give you the, the cynical answer, which is that people who work at a bank tend to be profit maximizing individuals. And in an early stage market, there are a ton of inefficiencies, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of this sense that you can get quote unquote alpha either from your own what you perceive to be better knowledge of financial systems than the, uh, the retail folks in the space, right? And there's also, I think, just a great deal of opportunity, right? I knew people that were trying to get long Chinese equities, for example, right? And if you're willing to look at things like that on the risk spectrum and you have that kind of risk-taking attitude, then uh, crypto offers re rewards that are many multiples of that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah. That. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. And yeah, especially in the early stages of a of a market, exploiting the inefficiencies is actually a lot of the. It's it's a, the reason a lot of people have come into this space. Uh, you exploit the inefficiencies, but then you also try to fix them at the same time. And yeah, what what better way to do that, right? Um, than than actually trying to exploit it and build these kinds of bots that can do so. Um, yeah. No, that's that's super interesting. And then um, you know, just to talk a little bit about Maple, then um. You know, so Maple's a, a decentralized, you know, 
corporate credit marketplace essentially um it's an it's an institutional marketplace uh for uh, crypto companies to source uh, credit so um you know can you you know just for our listeners provide a high level overview of how maple finance works and the specific problems it's trying to solve uh, in the crypto space absolutely so in simple terms, Maple uses smart contracts and blockchain to facilitate all of the mechanics you'd think about in running a credit fund, just doing it on chain. So the tech stack enables you to aggregate lender capital in a non-custodial way. So people post into a smart contract rather than take counterparty risk to the person running the fund. Um, you then can issue loans from that pool of capital, all again via the smart contract, and then manage the loan book, right? Borrow repayments, you know, timing, things like that. And then finally, you know, once the repayments come into the smart contract, then automatically distribute interest and fees back to lenders in the pro rata amount that they should have. So it, it basically, you know, takes away a lot of the system inefficiency that you'd see in a traditional finance credit fund because, you know, you have to have Excel, then you have a separate loan management system that does not talk to your Excel. And you've got all these army of ops people entering things into two systems. And it's pretty duplicative and inefficient. And, you know, from my side, smart contracts make a ton of sense for that kind of use case, right? But I think the other thing to note, and we can probably talk about this in more detail, is stable coins offer instant settlement, right? And that, that's yeah. a game changer for traditional finance, right? Like the, the, the anecdote I always like to give is I once worked on a deal where we had to settle a, a very large amount of money um, after agreeing the loan. So we signed the docs, everyone's happy. We said, okay, now we can send you the money. You know, we sent, I think it was a billion dollars on the wire client called us half an hour later and said, I don't see it. Remember, this isn't on chain. There's no way of yep. tracking it. We had to go call someone. They checked their swift, swift message. It took us four hours to find out where that money went. And, you know, we're sitting here in 2023. You have to wait one or two days for cross-country payments to settle. Like stable coins are a no-brainer for things like that, right? And I think that that's one of the big ways in which this was interesting to me. Awesome. And just, just to follow up on that. So then in terms of the stablecoins uh, point, how do you, how do you see stablecoins, you know, seamlessly integrating with existing infrastructure at financial services institutions? Because the, the problem that I've seen a lot is obviously that, um, you know, with technologies like blockchain um, with crypto, trying to integrate them at the heart of an existing infrastructure is not that easy. And a lot of the time, you know, you keep on going down and down and then you figure out that, well, you need to rip part of the old system out that costs a lot of money. And then the incentive um, to do that immediately compared to other objectives and priorities is not usually there. Um, so so how, how do you see the integration process happening and the, and the level of adoption within financial institutions? And, you know, in, in terms of that as well, would you think institutions are more uh, likely to do something like JP Morgan has done with JPM coin or use public stable coin uh, infrastructure, like, you know, even like a circle, for example, a USDC? Yeah. Um, I think, well, first of all, you're right. Most of the institutions, whether it's public or not, are experimenting with some form of stable coin, even for internal treasury management, right? That's just a, a piece of market color that I've picked up from my conversations in the space. That's because there's a recognition there that it's it's just superior tech, right? Your, what, your wider point about integrating into everything we do, and this comes down to the thesis that we have here at Maple, is that eventually it's logical for economic activity to move on chain, right? PayPal are, are looking at a stable coin as, as an example, right? And as more and more of the payment rails start coming into play, banks and traditional finance institutions need to ad adopt those rails as well. In terms of the form it'll take, honestly, and this is my personal view, you know, 
eventually a cent central bank is going to issue a stable coin, right? I think that's... The CBDC. Correct. And once that happens, that's probably going to give institutions significantly more a comfort to interact with that asset and be much more incentive to build the rails to do so, right? And, and you know, whilst right now USDC is, is probably the dominant one on the institutional side and, and Tether is uh, probably dominant on the retail side, especially in emerging market countries, I think really for that um, that process to kick off in earnest in a way that's applicable across, you know, all different institutions rather than all having their own coin, we'll, we'll probably need to see a central bank do it. But they're already running test programs, right? Like to, to see, exactly. And so I think it's a matter of time. This kind of goes back to what I was saying, Maple aside, crypto aside, some of this tech is just a significant improvement on what we have today, right? And it's it's about time some of those things got, got improved. And so for me, it's just a case of, Staying patient and, and waiting, waiting to see that that happen. Yeah, I think uh, the CBDC point definitely stands. I've seen quite a lot of that myself when I've when I've worked with CBDCs in the past, actually with a bunch of central banks. But yeah, I think um, a lot of that also hinges upon you know, and I, I don't want to veer veer off into uh, uh, philosophical uh, discussions, but just a quick one um, around like, you know, personally, what do you, what do you think about that? Right? Like, obviously, you know, a CBDC being enabled would be beneficial, especially to, um, you know, smooth, uh, to, to smooth institutional, uh, you know, to smooth institutional rails on which these kinds of assets interact. Um, but do you think, you know, a more institutionally focused CBDC where only, you know, whole, uh, you know, wholesale institutions can utilize it is, is more beneficial and, like from a retail perspective, um, what do you think will happen? Do you think it will be, uh, you know, a CBDC kind of, uh, you know, payment uh, solution, or do you think it'll be more of a stable, a private stablecoin one, or multiple private stablecoin ones? Yeah, I, I think that's ultimately who uses a stablecoin is going to come down to whether it's accepted on the other side, right? As is the the kind of going back to money 101, right? The value of something is basically how, how, how widely it's used and who else is going to accept it in response. And so you'll see a, you'll see one dominate when it becomes the, the prevailing choice of settlement. Maybe we end up in a world where multiple of these things are accepted at equal value, right? But I think one of the most common pushbacks in the space that I've experienced for a CBDC is the idea of surveillance, right? The concept that the government will get to see all of your transactions. And I, you know, and, I think it's somewhat naive to suggest that right now with wire payments and everyone moving you know, away from cash and, and into a contactless world that that level of surveillance doesn't already exist to some degree yeah. or another, right? And you know, the problem with cash, as fantastic as it is, is that you need to be next to the person to give it to them, right? Yeah. Or you need to post dollars in the mail or something. But in reality, most people today are, are, are using the bank rails anyway which means there is visibility on what you're doing. And you'll find that out if you ever go and ask for a mortgage or anything else, you know, in, in, in kind of ordinary course of being a human being. And so um, the privacy element aside, and it is, I do think there should be a right to privacy, but as you say, that's a completely separate philosophical conversation. I think the reality is something government approved gets, becomes dominant, right? And it gives small businesses, yeah much more comfort in accepting it, people much more comfort in using it. And if it's seamlessly integrated into your banking app, right? So if, if I press send dollars to SID2 over there and it and it, and it and it does it, and I don't see what's happening on the back end, but I know that you've received that cash, then then I don't really care, right? And, and, and that's what happens today when you make bank transfers. 
Um, and so I think that's probably the direction of travel and it's an altogether separate conversation, but I think that's where crypto needs to go. Right now, the user experience is yeah. challenging, right? And if you think about when you send an email, you have no idea what protocol is doing what on the back end yep. to get your message from A to B. And if we move to a world where that gets abstracted away, and we're already seeing wallets being abstracted away as an example, right? Move to a world where that becomes the case, then that's where crypto really finds its hidden adoption, if you will. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, just the last one, I know Sid's itching to get a question in as well, but uh, just want to follow up on that in the sense that, so what that implicitly means though, is that a lot of disintermediation is going to happen to the existing stablecoin players by um, CBDCs, right? So how do you foresee that happening? Do you think um, their network effect is strong enough at the moment? Or do you think that, you know, uh, that, that network effect can unravel very quickly in the opposite direction? Um, and how do you foresee that market going? Because, you know, people have, um, uh, th there's a lot of money that's been put into, uh, you know, entities like Circle to, you know, make them as ubiquitous as possible across the crypto ecosystem at the moment. Um, and, you know, even becoming more and more relevant across uh, TradFi, right? Like, for example, the way USDC is being used uh, to settle uh, merchant transactions on Visa or MasterCard, I think, or both. Um, but uh, lots of different types of examples like that. So how do you see, you know, that, uh, you know, getting impacted? How do you see someone like a circle or a tether? Tether is a different story altogether, to be honest. But um, how do you see them getting impacted by this kind of trend? Well, I think I think two things could happen, right? The first their case is the example you gave, right, where the central bank launches a CBDC and everyone just moves over to that. I think the reality is there'll probably be some scope for licensing, right, where the circle will become a form of bank in the future under a new regulatory regime and, and they're required to hold reserves with the central bank and they adopt it that way, in which case it is essentially a, a proxy for a CBDC once you once you start to get, get to yes. that level, right? Um, and I think that's probably far more, far more likely. And and you know, if you ever speak to a circle person or get on the podcast, I'm sure they're working with government institutions yeah. to try and integrate themselves in that sense, right? So I think the direction of travel for circle is probably to embrace the institutional side of things a little bit, right? Or the governmental oversight side of things. And they work very hard to be transparent and regulated. Um in order to achieve that, I think, and that's where they're going. And so that's that's probably where I would say. If I had to guess, you're right. They have a multi-billion dollar market cap. And rather than that, just go to zero. They're probably going to find some way to be involved as a, yeah. as the world moves in that direction. Cool. So just to just to uh, add a little bit on and close up this point. Um, Sid, if you've heard of UPI, I'm sure you have in India. Um, that's exactly what's happened. You know, the government has come in, made the whole transaction process super simple abstracted away everything and now you have instant settlement as far as the user is concerned and that's been adopted so to your point right like that's exactly what has happened already as opposed to what might you know how you're talking in, in the future tense so i mean just a case study there right um so i want to and just a quick side note my questions are going to be more higher level business oriented because I don't have the technical depth that Sid Shah here has. Um, so if you could right, help me with understanding, number one, how does, say, a traditional analog of Maple Finance work, right? Like, a, let's, let's call it a, the user journey, right, of, of 
the, a, a traditional credit fund or, or whatever entity it is, and then maybe give us a parallel version of Maple Finance itself. So a step-by-step -step user journey of Maple Finance, and then highlight just, you know, here's the pain point, right? And here's how Maple Finance is doing it differently, better, which then obviously then ties into what the thesis is. So if you could just give me, you know, a brief on these, on this broad point, um, I think it'll be super helpful for our, for our um, audience. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think, I think in order to understand that you need to think about kind of the three different types of users on Maple, right? You have lenders, which you could think of as fund LPs in the traditional sense, i.e. people who want to allocate capital and earn yield. You have pool delegates is what we call them, but they are the credit fund managers whose job is to focus on the underwriting, right? And then you have borrowers who are guys who want to access financing in some form or another, draw down loans, make repayments and carry out their day-to-day -day business. Now, from a credit fund perspective, let's say I had spent 10 years on the lending desk at JP Morgan and I wanted to go and start a credit fund. In order for me to do that, first of all, the amount of legal infrastructure that I would need to um, draw up, the lawyer fees I would need to spend, you know, we at Maple provide the legal infrastructure built ourselves. So we've drafted up master loan agreements, confirmations, all of the documentation suite that's enforceable in the state of New York that underpins that. So if you're a person who wanted to start a credit fund and you have underwriting expertise, first of all, the legal side is abstracted away from you. Secondly, from a systems perspective, and still in the half of a credit fund manager here, um, from a systems perspective, how do you manage your loan book, right? So on, on step one, you'll want to keep track of all of the positions, the interest rates, all the key terms of the loan. Most people do that with Excel today. There are some systems built for that, but you know, as by and large, from what I saw at a bank, Excel is probably going to be the main way in which people you know, do this kind of thing. Um, and then you may have a separate system, which is a payment system where you actually need to settle, right? Like Anna described, the SWIFT Swift messaging is, you know, the way in which money is sent across borders or to other folks in, in a given currency, you'd also have that system. Then you need an operations person who is in charge of sending and wiring and collecting to make sure the money comes in and probably a reconciliation system where you make sure that the Excel sheet is, is actually up to date with what's happening on the payment side. And then in addition, you'd have potentially a custodian, right, in order to hold assets when they come in from your, your lenders. And then finally, I think, you know, with all of those all of those things happening in the background already, you then also have the underwriting side, right, which is which is the the main job of the of the of the people involved to actually like take a look at the credit risk, right? And now, if we take that into account, and then we think about what Maple does, right? Um, oh, the last one probably I should mention is is the fund administrator. So keep track of the net asset value of the fund, the amount of assets that are actually being allocated or the interest that is being earned by each LP and how that's split amongst your 100, 200, however many, you know, lenders you've got into your, into your vehicle. Now at Maple, the smart contracts do 90% of that system stuff that I described just there. So when lenders deposit into a smart contract, smart contracts automatically calculating the nav of the pool in the sense that it can account for how much money is in there. Right. And, you know, ERC 4626, which is probably getting a little bit technical, but basically the token standard on Ethereum enables the interest to accrue block by block rather than, you know, once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is, automatically to those LP positions, which means their receipt token of their position in the pool or position in the fund is always taking into account the NAV as it increases without anyone manually doing any sort of mathematics on the back end. Right. From there, from an underwriting perspective, you don't need a custodian because the assets are held in a smart contract, which means that 
you know, you don't need to have a separate custody account where you're, where you're storing those in a safe way. They're just held there. And from an underwriting perspective, you just approve or deny loans out of that pool of capital, right? And so from a credit fund manager's perspective, his life is significantly simplified because all he has to focus on is the important bit, which is making sure he's writing loans to good borrowers. Right? Mm -hmm. On the borrower's side, when those loans are approved out of that, out of that pool, you get settled instantly, which means you get your money 10 seconds later, 20 seconds later, however long the Ethereum you know, uh, blockchain takes to process it. And you can draw down that money and go away and use it immediately, which is pretty interesting for a lot of borrowers, right? Like it just takes away inefficient plus one, plus two days on either side of it. In terms of collecting repayments, if there's a default or you're late, smart contracts automatically start accruing the late interest fees you owe, the default interest fees you owe, well, again, without a human being sitting there and working out exactly how long it's been and what that position should look like. So for all the different components of this, right, because everything is automated on the back end, lenders can always see what their position is happening in real time and, and how their interest is accruing. Credit fund managers have most of the work abstracted away and we provide the legal documentation suite as well. And borrowers get money instantly when they need it and can also repay much closer to the time, right? Because if you have a T plus two or T plus three settlement, as a borrower, you need to start thinking, where am I going to get that capital? How am I going to root it in? Whereas we've had on-chain borrowers get the money in, you know, an hour before the payment's due and then just send it in, right? So for, for guys who need to move quickly, if you're a trading firm or something like that, it also creates a little bit of efficiency there. I know that was a lot, but hopefully that that's a, that's a good example. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So if I had to summarize, right? Um, the broad points where Maple Finance really helps are number one, um, all the admin work, right? All the admin work, maybe legal admin or from a calculating fund performance perspective, it's all abstracted away. That's number one. Number two is uh, from a um, security standpoint, right? Um, there is, like, like you said, there's usually a custodian. So right now the custodian is also automated. So you have, uh, you have admin security, and then there's, of course, um, settlement, instant settlement. So there's a user experience um, uh, uh, superiority, let's say, right, for uh, Maple Finance. So, I mean, the, my next question on this would be, uh, you know, from a customer standpoint, right now, I'd assume um, the risk assessment, which is, like you said, the uh, main job, right, for a manager, they are being able to do that because their borrowers are on-chain entities. That that would be my assumption, correct? Um, going forward, or is there already some some work being done in Maple Finance to move that over to say real life uh, non-off-chain businesses or entities, uh, or how are we thinking through you know the borrow the borrower mix right now and how that's gonna or how it should look as per Maple, say two three years down the line. I think that's a great question. Um, so you're right in that borrowers from Maple either need to be on-chain entities or entities who are willing to set up the infrastructure to take capital down from the on-chain space, right? And and that's getting easier and easier as well, right? As we discussed the wallet process, the, the existence of more and more custodians, all of these kind of things is getting better for people to do. And so this kind of goes to my original thesis, which is as payment rails and economic activity move on chain, more and more borrowers should already, real world entities you're putting, it should have the infrastructure in place to be able to take digital assets, right? But you know, we do have a couple of borrowers, we have a real world assets pool, and maybe this is a theme that I can talk about in a bit more detail. We have a real world assets pool where the borrower used to take lots of money from hedge funds, 
capital providers in the space. But um, when they came and spoke to us about what they were doing and we DD'd their, their process, we were willing to kind of provide them financing with the help of a third party or delegate fund manager in that case. And so they actually set up the infrastructure on their end to be able to take it down. And we're having more and more conversations like that where institutions are more and more amenable, let's say, to actually making sure they have that infrastructure in-house because they see the direction of travel. That conversation was harder one year ago than it is today, but it's still a current blocker, right? And I, and I think it's improving, but there's, there's a way to go there. So just uh, following up on that then, like in terms of, and you know, I've seen that a lot as well, right? And that's actually like one of the main reasons why I'm in this, why I'm in crypto, why I enjoy it because real world assets and, um, you know, giving liquidity to illiquid assets is one of the most important things that this technology can achieve. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the, the trend has been towards T-bills and, um, you know, specifically actually like US T-bills uh, because of the interest rate environment at the moment. Um, so, you know, from your experience, what assets do you think are next to be tokenized um, and, you know, you, that you guys are seeing interest in uh, from, I guess, more traditional players in, um, you know, tokenizing and accessing via your pools? And, and, what, and, you know, if not anything specific that you can say, what do you think that your opinion is on the types of assets that would be next in line, I guess, from a, um, from like a waterfall kind of perspective, right? So you have T-bills and then what do you go, what's the roadmap looking like? Yeah, um, I'll talk more generally here, but I can I can go into more detail on Maple's roadmap, but I think it's more interesting for your listeners to hear the, the industry as a whole. Peebles, clearly the most natural place. And actually the genesis of that for most people was that, um, you know, the, the risk-free rate, as we call it in traditional finance, is the US government, right? Like that's where it comes from. The US government prints dollars, so they should never be defaulting on their obligations. Not that they haven't come close in a couple of years, but most people... In the last couple of years, most people expect them, you know, they'll get there in the end, whatever politicking they need to do to, to make that happen. Um, the equivalent of that in crypto used to be Aave and Compound, right, which was um, a decentralized uh, marketplace for you to, to, to earn yield. Um, but those rates came down a lot because there was less, um, less appetite for leverage, right? And so those those rates on RV and Compound were very much driven by people borrowing to lever up and, and take more risk on crypto assets. And in a bear market, people aren't doing that as much. So rates came down. And so that it started to become a thing of, would you rather take smart contract risk on RV and Compound for 2% or just have access to the US government risk-free rate for 5%? That should be a somewhat of a no-brainer. The natural path from there is clearly other corporate bonds, right? People have already built various structures to facilitate treasury bills. There's no reason you can't move to triple B right? Or maybe even specific sectors like EM bonds, things like that, depending on the risk yeah. profile. It's a very natural place to go. One word of caution about the risk, risk real world asset space. And it's something we think about a lot here because we only have, you know, we have the T-bills pool. We have a little bit of a high yielding uh, receivables pool, but we see a lot of these opportunities and we diligence them very carefully. And, you know, the reason for that is I think there is the potential that you run into a adverse selection problem. And by that, I mean, if today a given borrower would like to access financing on chain, the very first question you have to ask is why, right? Is it because you are not able to get financing from the traditional space? And is that because your business doesn't actually pass muster from a due diligence perspective with these guys? Or is it because you're just crypto? And, and we all appreciate that there's an element of banks won't touch me because we're crypto. Therefore, we're coming you know, to on-chain capital, which is a reasonable position to take because you might have a viable business that just is currently tarnished with 
whatever the perspective of the space is at the moment. But actually, the reality for a lot of these businesses is that, you know, there might be fintechs and microfinance guys, especially in the EM world, who do lend to businesses like them and are not willing to do so because of the, you know, risk risk parameters they put in place. And so they find themselves on chain trying to uh, slip through the net, as it were, and find an easier DD process to access financing. So we're very, very careful about that because it's important to understand why the borrower wants to come on chain, right? Like from their perspective. Um, but there are still interesting opportunities, you know, out there. I think there is a danger that if this gets adopted too widely, then I think the number of interesting opportunities versus the number of yeah. dangerous opportunities is 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 um, not a great balance. And so, um, you know, it's something that we take a lot of care with on our side here. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And, you know, just to follow up on that a little bit. Um, so around the due diligence process, right? So do you, so how do you maintain that standard of due diligence? And like, what's the kind of framework that you guys use in order to suss out what exactly the reason for someone wanting to borrow from you guys on chain is? Um, so, you know, you said that they might not get accepted for banks and that, you know, you can actually see that happen a lot. So that's definitely a very valid point. Uh, but what would you say is the, um, you know, is, is, how do you maintain that your due diligence process works as much as possible? And is there any like automated part of that or do you have to do it, you know, manually um, in the same way as it is, uh, you know, done traditionally? Yeah. So. As I mentioned earlier, there are third-party pool delegates, credit fund managers who come to the platform and say, hey, we have this expertise. We want to run a, a financing strategy. We want to use Maple as the platform to source capital and then you know, do our job. And that was the only setup we had before, which meant from a Maple perspective, we would carry out due diligence on prospective pool delegates, basically try and ratify their um their, their quality, their experience, and then let them go and run the strategy as they see fit, because really we positioned ourselves as a marketplace for institutional credit, right? And so if we're just the infrastructure that facilitates that, as I described earlier, then great. Like as long as we we think you're good enough to be on the platform, you can go in and apply your own DD process to that. And we'll take a look at it and make sure we're happy. But, you know, in recent months, actually in August, we launched Maple Direct which is our in-house pool delegate, i.e. we launch some pools where we do the credit underwriting ourselves. And that's because it was becoming an increasing blocker for the business to find quality delegates, quality underwriting guys who wanted to set up a credit fund, as I described, on chain. And we realized, well, we have guys with you know, 20 plus years combined traditional finance experience in the credit space. We probably have some of the sophistication in-house to do this process ourselves. And so that's, you know, a couple of the pools we've launched recently enables us to move quicker when we see these interesting opportunities, because before I had to find a borrower, then I had to find an underwriter who understood that borrower, put them together and then make the product happen on the platform. Now we can just find the borrower. And if we like it, we can do the underwriting ourselves in-house. And if a suitable delegate comes along, we can, we can hand it over. So from our perspective, um, we go a little deeper than, you know, why can't you access financing today? And it is, to answer your question, done very much in the traditional sense. In that we look at financials, we interview management, we take a view, and we try our best to make it parallel to traditional finance. So we think risk-free rate, four to five percent, um, ETH staking rate, five percent. Right, that gives you a a base case idea of what minimum yield lenders are going to expect from this thing, and then you start to apply premiums for the risk. Right, like you know, where does a comparable traditional finance entity like yourself raise in in 
you know, get access financing in the market today? And what what does that look like on chain? Um, and we go through that. So it's it's a very standard due diligence process in that sense. But um, as I say, I'm just I was really noting that we just take more care on these real world asset opportunities as they come to us because we don't want to get caught up in a kind of flavor of the month type situation where we uh, we let our uh, our DD slip because you know that's what people yeah want definitely. So um, so I have a question on this and please. Correct me if I misunderstood you, right? So originally, Maple is a marketplace where third-party cut managers um, can deploy their strategies for, uh, you know, uh, capital providers, right? Um, and now uh, you're saying Maple has launched an in-house uh, product, right? Yes. But isn't there some sort of conflict there because then you're you're directly competing with uh, like a stakeholder um, of your value chain, or is there some sort of positioning difference? That uh, that that goes on between the two uh, stakeholders, like ourselves and uh, uh, capital managers. Yeah, I think it's it's a very good point. Something we had to think about very carefully. Our, my easiest parallel for you is if you think about a fidelity, right? And you look at the products they offer. They have the fidelity ETF, but they also have a BlackRock ETF and another ETF provider, right? Mm-hmm. They have both on the platform, and they present them dispassionately to the audience to allow them to choose which one they want to do. That model is one we try to emulate, if you like, here, in the sense that we show all of the products that are available on our platform grouped by strategy type. So if it's tables, tables. If it's real-world assets, mm-hmm. you know, we have a third-party person, they'll put them in, and they'll get the exact same priority and ranking for us. And for us, you know, we're kind of agnostic in that sense about where you decide to put your capital on the platform. We try not to provide too many like we won't do an exact copy of someone else's pool because there shouldn't be any real reason for us to do that. I think it's it's more that if there's a strategy we want to do, we think would be interesting for the space and we can't find an underwriter who's sufficiently qualified or has the expertise to, to go and launch that, we can just do it ourselves and move quicker. But um, you know, without going into too much commercial detail, we speak to all of the third party guys on the on the platform and we say, look, like, from a BD perspective, anyone that comes into the platform interested in your pool gets sent straight to you. You handle it. We're not going to try and you know move them you know into one of our products. We're trying to maintain that degree of of separation in that sense. And then you know from a website layout perspective, trying to make sure that people see these things on equal footing. And really, what you should be focused on is what's your liquidity preference? Do you want a higher duration or lower duration? What's your rate preference? And then, you know, from there, you can go into details and speak with the relevant fund manager, whether that's us, you know, at Maple or the third party who's in the platform. Awesome. And one last question, and please, uh, you know, I'm not sure if this is public information or not, and if it's not, it's completely fine. But can you give us a sense of the scale that Maple Finance has achieved in terms of, you know, maybe loans, capital deployed uh, or number of loans deployed, something of that sort? On-chain, oh, man, it's uh, definitely public. It's it's all on-chain. We, we <laughs> love transparency here. Um, we have issued more than $2.4 billion of loans since inception in 2021. The peak TVL on the platform was just under a billion dollars. It was close to 900 and something, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, right now, TVL is at 75, 80-odd million thereabouts and i'll have to check the exact number for you because we have withdrawals and deposits coming in every day but but you know you can tell a bit of a story there and 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 maybe it's worth me telling you what happened which is 
Maple originally found product market fit lending unsecured to market makers, right? And we had permissionless and permissioned offerings, which meant some KYC, some you can just come in and deposit as long as your wallet passed a AML screen, basically to make sure it hadn't interacted with anything sanctioned. Um, the direction of travel, in my view, for the space for most institutions is that they would like to know where the money's coming from, right? You can imagine if you're touching treasury bills, the broker dealer needs to know that the cash is coming from a KYC AML source, otherwise they aren't going to allow you to integrate with them, you know, from a, from a T-bill pool perspective or a real-world asset pool perspective. But also borrowers like to know that, you know, the lenders themselves are uh, reputable folks who've, who've got an appropriate amount of sophistication as it, it kind of lowers risk for them. And so post-FTX, I think the space became a lot more cognizant of counterparty risk, right? And so that led to us needing to do a little bit of a pivot away from that strategy where market makers would just borrow unsecured to lever up as much as possible and start to offer more collateralized secured offerings to take into account kind of where market conditions are today. Now, for what it's worth, I still think there's very much a place for unsecured lending, right? It really comes down to good DD. But, um, you know, there's a market reality at the moment, which is where market makers would like to borrow versus where lenders would like to lend to them unsecured does not currently tie out, right? Because mm -hmm. there's not enough desire for capital on the hedge fund side to lever up because volumes are so low and lenders are expecting a significantly higher interest rate given that they're lending unsecured. Um, and so that's why, you know, TVL went on a bit of a roller coaster as many of the other uh, folks in the space have seen. But from our side, you know, considering we pivoted at the start of the year, 60, 70 odd million in TVL by this stage is something we're very proud of, right? It's been hard to grow this year and we've managed to demonstrate that quarter on quarter. And we think you know, from a, from a permissioning perspective, it doesn't fit with everyone's ethos. But if you do on the institutional side, you know, it tends to bring them more comfort, right? They actually like the fact that they need to go to KYC because to them it adds an air of legitimacy, let's say, but it also enables us to offer you a much more white glove service, right? I speak to every single one of our lenders. I tell them all of the latest developments in the pool. When it was a permissionless thing, we had a thousand wallets that we didn't know. It was significantly harder, right? Because you like you don't know who any of these people are. And so I think it's actually improved our product offering. But yeah, that's a, a bit of a, a background for you on, on how we ended up here today. No, absolutely loved it. Uh, this is quite insightful. Um, just just to uh, conclude this whole conversation, um, I mean, we ask almost everyone, you know, since so many finance professionals in the traditional world are interested in getting into, you know, uh, DeFi, crypto, um, you know, what type of roles would you suggest in your experience they target and you know how how would the transition process be uh should they should they target to make this change most smoothly effectively yeah i mean i think if you're a trader you should definitely be looking at this space right and the reason for that is um if you can trade derivatives on any given underlying you'll have a lot of fun in this space where markets are significantly more inefficient vol is much, much higher. And if you think you have an edge, as I think most good traders think they do, there's plenty of room here for, uh, for good roles to, to, to do very, very well. And in fact, you know, I saw a lot of kind of ex-millennium, you know, really top ex-Citadel, top hedge fund guys coming into the space with precisely that thesis. And in that sense, as long as you understand markets, you'll really find the underlying just changes. And that's kind of what I experienced to some extent at a GSR, where instead of selling options on the oil price of calls or puts or whatever, I was doing it on Bitcoin or ETH, which means vol is higher, but the underlying concepts of financial primitive is unchanged. And so it's just a, just a slightly different uh, underlying product, but the, the principles are the same. 
on the sales and BD side, I think the toughest thing about leading from traditional finance is that you come from this world where you work in a 100,000 person company, or if you're from a big bank, or at least a place where there's this massive support structure behind you, right? And if you ever want to go to the startup or product side, you need to view it very much the same as leaving to join a fintech in the sense that you're going to need to get comfortable operating in a very lean team, wearing lots of different hats, right? Some days I'm doing my beauty, my sales work. Some days I'm looking at the operational side of things. Some days I'm doing product testing. And you need to have the kind of openness and willingness to say that, right, like I, I'm not married to my one box and I'm willing to, uh, to, to learn the other parts of it. But I think the biggest thing for this space is passion, right? By and large, a lot of the guys that did very, very well here were early and they love the tech and they're very interested in, in, uh, in learning more about, you know, the latest developments, things like that. Um, and, you know, I've interviewed a few people from traditional finance. And if you get the sense that someone's coming here because they just, you know, they want money or, 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 or you know, they're, they're looking for something else, but they don't really know anything about crypto. They just think it's something that, that they, they, could, they could get into because they have finance experience. Even if they come through, they're not going to have a very, very good time. This can be a pretty soul-crushing experience, right, in the depths of a bear market. And I think if you don't have that underlying belief and love and thesis for the space, it's you shouldn't bother, right? Because there are far too many people here who do. And, and what will happen has happened to a lot of people is they ended up back on a traditional finance desk one year later with their crypto experiment deleted from their LinkedIn, right? And so I think, um, you know, number one, if you're if you're doing it personally, if you're reading about it, if you're interested in it, then most of the other things your financial education will just help you with, right? Ultimately, things like tokenomics is just supply and demand, right? Like my first day at GSR, I had to look at tokenomics for a new protocol. And I can see that if you're emitting tokens at this rate, or if it's inflationary, like if you don't match by a demand on the other side, your price is going to go down. I don't need to be, but the whole thing about it is it's so accessible because you don't need to be a genius to know that, right? And anyone who spent any time in a finance job can see that. So passion number one, traders obviously have a great time, but just be willing to see it like a fintech space is kind of is how I would position yourself to come in here. Awesome. No, I think that's perfect. And that's a great answer as well. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Sid, for all the, uh, for just being on the podcast, just chatting with us and uh, yeah, uh, introducing the world of Maple and, and uh, helping uh, helping some of the folks who want to desperately leap across from TradFi into DeFi, uh, making that process a little more smooth and seamless. But no, thanks so much for joining. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, that was a great conversation. I think uh, we learned quite a lot from that. No worries at all, man. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers. Uh, yeah, thanks everyone, and see you guys next time. That was uh, that was a great episode. Cheers. Thank you.